Um, so turn to your neighbors and just say hello, and uh, just say, man, you look really beautiful today, and I've never seen you look better, okay? So go ahead and do that. <laughs> Aw, come on. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. And so we, uh, when I first heard about this series that we're on, that that we're resuming today, uh, focusing on the seven deadly sins, my immediate thought was, man, I do not want to go to these series of messages because it is tough to listen to the dark parts of ourselves, isn't it? It, it, It's to see our struggles, right, and to see the weaknesses so clearly defined against the holiness and, and the perfection of God. And so uh, a lot of times when we think about sin, and, and we talk about sin, especially in a, in a whole sermon series, uh, it's easier to ignore. It's really easy to ignore sin. It's easy to say, hey, we're, we're not so bad, right? You look at each other, I mean, you look, the person next to me is worse. I know what they did last weekend. And, and so there are worse people. So, but, but the thing that, that we need you to understand, and the thing about talking about sin and, and wrestling with this concept of deadly sins is that if we see our weakness, if our weakness and our struggles make us more desperate for God, if they lead us to run to Jesus and see him as our only hope for any kind of redemption and in any kind of grace, then perhaps we need to hear more about our sins. Perhaps we need to focus more on the depth of our brokenness in order for us to see how much we desperately need him. Jesus himself says, right, he says, I came not for the healthy, but I came for the sick. Only the sick need doctors. And so the gospel, and I'm convinced of this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ, is only as beautiful as if you recognize the depth of our sinfulness. And so I pray that these messages, uh, you know, we're going through this series, that, that they may lead us to repentance and may lead us and reveal to our hearts just how great and beautiful the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And so that's our only hope. Okay, so I I set that up and lay it before you, and let me pray one more time, and we'll launch into our series. Father, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are so honored and so grateful. God, I never actually thank you for your word. (laughs) I never actually say thank you that we have access to the revelation of Jesus Christ and to the way that you want us to live and the way that you have called us to, to shine our light and the good news that lies in your word for all of us, no matter what culture or, or people we come from. And so I pray, Father, that you open our hearts today. You help us to to reflect and and, and think about the things in our lives that keeps us from you. And help me, Lord, to get out of the way so that your spirit could work. I give you this time and and these words in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to talk and focus our topic this morning is on, on the topic of greed. Okay, and greed. And and so if we we if we be honest about it, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Vietnamese born, and I learned all, all about money from my mom. And I just share with you, man, I mean, and my parents, they're, they're, I'm not, I wouldn't say they're greedy. That's kind of mean to say my parents are greedy. But what they are, they're, they're very uh, sensitive about money. 
And so, uh, and so I've learned a lot about uh, the value of money, how, how to be frugal, how to be cheap, how to, how to complain when we are overcharged. I learned a lot about that and the drive that it takes for us. And so this morning, when I, when I, when, this week when I'm pre- prepping for this, it's been a kind of a hard uh, poke in the face each time I read God's word. And so uh, in chapter 5 of Ecclesiastes, uh, the teacher, uh, most people assume it's uh, uh, King Solomon writing this, but uh, we, ne- we never know who it is. But the teacher begins to talk about the things that he finds meaningless. So in chapter 5, verse 8, he's going to talk about this pursuit of wealth. Okay, so in verse 8, if you read with me. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are higher, are higher, uh, others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So, so right away, he enters into this, this discussion on greed. And the first thing we need to know about greed is that greed rules our world. Greed rules our world. It is the, the primary way we function with each other. And so for generations, you can hit the next, uh, uh, for generations to generations, uh, every culture, there have been this delineation between the haves and the have-nots, right? Between the rich and the poor. And so the ones who hold wealth, they hold the power and they make all the rules and they create a system that benefits them from the start. Meanwhile, the poor and the marginalized, they suffer, they struggle to live within a system that is, that is against them from the very start. And we see that in every single culture. You take a class on anthropology, you, you learn about culture and how the power structure works. And so we have to ask the question, what drives this mindset? What is behind this, this legal and economic disparity? In verse 9, what we just read, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, he looks to his or her culture and says it plainly. Those in power are greedy for gain. The justice is denied and oppression happened because people are greedy for profit. There's people over them and then there's others over them as well. And he says at the end there, the, the increase from the land, the profit of the land, the king himself takes a cut of that. And so the haves built their wealth on the have-nots. It's always been the case. Now, injustice and oppression, these are complex issues. And it may be very simplistic of me to, to simply put it all on greed. Yet the love of money drives so many things in our world. So much of our economic and social ills are derived from this, this idea of love and money. Now, I'm not sure where I, I heard this, and I did a bit of research for it, but it blew me away when I first heard this. It is said that the land around the River Nile uh, in, in Africa, uh, the, that land is so rich and so fertile that if it's, pro- if, if it's maintained right and if it's used right, can grow enough crops not only to feed all the hungry in Africa, but for the rest of the world. How fertile it is. Yet because of what? Political instability, economic tribalism, 
wasteful water usage, various conflicts in that area. There's so many conflicts up and down that river. Hunger and poverty remains. It's a huge problem on a beautiful continent. So that just, that just blows me away, that there's enough food in one river basin to feed the world if only we know how to manage it right. And so greed, in whatever ways you were living, and ever, where you go to work and where you go to school, greed, see how greed rules the way we, we, we live our lives. It rules our world today. And everything is driven by profit and the ability to make more, to achieve more, to be more. And so let me just right from the start say that when we talk about greed, it's not just the pursuit of money. Greed is also the pursuit of, of, of ambition the pursuit of, of hard work and the things that we're trying to build, that can also be as greedy as well. And so let's move on and say, well, okay, if greed rules our world, then what drives this greed? What drives this greed? Let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 to 11. The teacher continues, says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This, too, is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? And so the, the thing that drives greed is that greed is never satisfied. Greed is never satisfied. And that's the danger with greed. You know, in college, when, uh, when we all go to UW, you go to UW, one of the first class you have to take as a cushion, you know, is Econ 101. And I sat in Econ 101 with 800 people in Kane Hall, uh, and I sat there, and the first thing they taught us, the first rule of economics is what? Everybody wants more. Now, they might have changed the wording or whatever it is, but I remember that. Everyone desires more. So there's no cap to our desires, uh, and, and, and there's no end to the possibility of having more, of achieving more. There's always something next to conquer. And verse 11, as the wealth increase, what the teacher say, so too those who consume them, whether those consumers be dependents or creditors and bankers or bills. As you're richer you get, there's more consumer. And so the teacher looks at that and he says, how meaningless how meaningless and hopeless it is to try to fill this bottomless pit, to satisfy what cannot be satisfied, to simply watch uh, as our hard-earned wealth pass from our hands. How meaningless all of this pursuit is, yet much of our energy in this life, what you've been taught growing up, everything that we are about, we spend so much energy on this one pursuit. And so this insatiable appetite for greed is what makes this sin so very deadly. Uh, Christopher Kaczor, a, a Catholic blog writer, he explains it this way. And I like this quote. That I put it on there for you. He says, unlike natural wealth, such as clothes, there is no limit on artificial wealth. There are only so many hamburgers a person can eat or clothes that can be worn, but there's no limit whatsoever to the amount we can have in our bank account. For this reason, greed is a particularly dangerous kind of sin. 
The glutton eventually achieves complete fullness. The person committing a lustful act reaches a point of natural satiation. The angry person may explode in rage, thereby draining his fury. Even the drunk will reach a point where he passes out and can drink no more. But the greedy person never reaches an end point in the accumulation of riches. Okay, now that's, that's pretty sobering. And so people who work in advertisements, they know this very well. In fact, our capitalistic economic system is based on this principle of desiring more, of spending more, and wanting more things. It is built, in fact, upon our greediness and our consumption. The recent Christmas shopping data indicates that Americans are spending more than ever, setting even records. Wall Street is happy, so that means our economy is in good shape, and you have a bright future. So greed drives our world with its bottomless appetite. That's the danger of greed. Now, none of you guys are greedy, of course. Never talk about you. And so our, our job is to see what world we live in and what's wrong with greedy. So, so, so that's the next question. What, what is wrong with greed? Look at verse 12. The teacher continues. He says, the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. And so the first thing that we need to know that there's some, what's wrong with greed is that greed destroys the very thing it promises to bring. Greed destroys what it promises to bring. If you want a really fascinating and depressing read, uh, look up reports online of the lives of lottery winners. You know, I, you think a lot when you go driving and you see these billboards and they tell you that the lotto is reaching $450 million and you start dreaming for the next 10 minutes, like I do, of what you do with that money if you win it, right? We all do that. Oh, am I just the only one? Okay, I am the only one. Okay, and so you dream about that and then you go home and you read these stories and you think how amazing it is to suddenly win millions of dollars, to be set for life, to not worry about money. But these lives tell a different story. And I, I just did a sample search, okay? Um, there, were, there were literally uh, dozens of stories of depression, multiple divorces, of irrational fears, of people just kind of like they won the lottery, and they pick up and they move to a place where no one knows them, of isolation of emptiness of life, dysfunctional families, rebellious children. Money, right? You think it answers all the questions and hear a different story. You think that if only we have enough money, we would be happy. We could serve God, go on missions, support those who are in ministry, allow our children to go to great school, enjoy all of life's pleasures. But the teacher declares here with wealth, with ambition even, comes a lack of sleep, insomnia that comes from worry and fear and overworking. Accumulating wealth 
and ambition. It's like playing a game of Jenga. You take pieces from your foundation and you put it on the top and you sacrifice as your structure gets taller. Sooner or later, one misfortune, one sickness comes and how great is the fall. How great is the fall. So see, the thing about greed, right? the thing about greed is it's like any other sin. It begins with really good motives. Right? We want to work hard, right? We, we want to work hard. We want to move up the ladder. We want to support our families. We want that extra money to ease the pressures of bills and to ensure a better future for our, our children. Yet, yet greed, we never think of greed as being costly. Greed has a cost. Whether it is the workaholic who becomes an absent parent or absent husband or wife, or the lover of wealth who cuts corner and steps on people to reach better returns and better profits. Or, or here, here, here's what hurts me most. Or the Christian student who decides to forsake God and fellowship in order to focus on school and grades to get a better shot at entering college or get a better career. I see that. I see that temptation. I see the struggle. And, then, and I'm amazed. I'm amazed sometimes how easily it is for us to push aside our faith and say, God, you're always going to be there, but I need to take care of this now. We put him on the back burner for the sake of our ambition and our desires for life. And so greed destroys the very people we set out to help, especially ourselves. And so greed, what it does, is it, brings, it does not bring peace, but sleepless nights and anxieties and fears. Peace in life, and you guys know this, has nothing to do with wealth or achievement. It doesn't even depend on whether or not you eat well or you eat poorly. It has everything to do with contentment. So we'll talk about contentment at the end of the message. And so greed destroys what it promises to bring. Another thing that's wrong with greed is found in verse 15. The teacher continues. He says, everyone comes naked from, his, from their mother's womb. And as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Another thing that's wrong with greed, greed thinks it is in control. It thinks it is in control. See, another illusion of greed that it gives you a sense of power, of having control in one's destiny. I've, I've earned this wealth, so I can do whatever I desire. I accomplished these goals. I started my own business. I started my own firm, so I can do anything I set my mind to. But what does the teacher remind us? That death, death, the great equalizer, Death spoils everything. 
just as we had not control, have no control over our birth, so we will have no control over how we will die. You know, we can exercise and eat kale and probiotic ourselves to death. We are still going to die. And this timing is out of our hands, isn't it? And so another thing about that is we come into this world without any wealth, with no achievement, and everything we earn along the way gets left behind. And so this sentiment is very true. You never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. Death spoils everything. And so in light of this, the teacher, he presses a little harder. So if you can't take things with you, then why do you focus so much on the accumulation of wealth and achievements? Why run after something that can never be satisfied? Why endure the cost of greed? So see, greed it yearns for control, and it's totally understandable. In a world that seems so out of control, greed provides a sense of power in a world that makes us feel very powerless. Greed gives to us a voice in the world and in the church where people seem to only listen to those in power or to those who have success. But to find all of this to being greedy, to pursuing wealth or pursuing ambition is an illusion because ultimately death spoils everything. And so grace, I mean greed, is meaningless and becomes a chasing after the wind. And so greed, it, it fails, it, it, it puts to death, it actually destroys the very things it promised. And greed thinks it's in control. The last thing about greed, uh, what's wrong with greed, is found in verse, starting in verse 18. And this is what I have observed, the teacher continues, to be good. That it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given them. For this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with the gladness of heart. To think about greed, it tries to get what only God can give. It tries to get what only God can give. So if greed is meaningless, then in a very depressing, uh, depressing tone, the teacher concludes, hey, enjoy food and drink and work. Let those things make you forget the meaninglessness of life. Right? This teacher, and I, I think we went through this series, right, Ecclesiastes, this teacher needs a hug. But look at what he's pointing out, though. We are not in control. Our wealth and possessions are given by God. The ability to enjoy them, the very ability to enjoy wealth is also a gift from God. 
the acceptance of mundaneness and the trudgery of life, that is a gift from God. The blissful forgetfulness of life, of, of, of the toils and, and the hardship occurs only because what? God keeps us occupied with the gladness of heart. So when you're greed, when greed takes control, when you pursue ambition, you try to get wealth, you try to achieve a, enjoyment, you try to find satisfaction and gladness. But what greed does, it leads you to darkness and frustration and sleeplessness, fear, and wrath. You end up missing the whole point of life. Only God can give what we long for. See, the greatest danger of greed then is that it replaces God, like all sin, right? It replaces God as the source of our desires. God has been dethroned by the power of our own wishes and wants, no longer having to yield to and depend on some outside force. Greed puts us at the center and wills us to achieve our own dreams. The only one who could satisfy our hearts, the one for whom we were created for, is placed on the back burner. Greed tries to get what only God can give. And greed, in essence, makes us feel like gods. And what a powerful temptation that is. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing new under the sun. In, 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 in Genesis chapter 3, that same temptation that the snake offered to Eve and the snake offered to Adam, that's the same temptation that comes through greed. You can be like gods. You can have whatever you want. Man, in a world that operates on greed, and greed operates by this insatiable appetite for more, destroying the very thing it promises, uh, things such as peace and security and control, and replaces it with fear and worry and isolation and frustration. It tries to get what only God can give. And so, what's the answer to greed? What's the answer to greed? Now, you have your Bibles. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. In the Old Testament, now we're going to go to the New Testament letter of Paul to his protege or his disciple, uh, Timothy. And in, in his writing, he's encouraging Timothy and asking him and, 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 and giving him the tools to lead and teach his church well. And here in chapter 6, Paul concludes with this very familiar warning. And look, the language he uses is very similar to Ecclesiastes. And so this imagery is very powerful here. In verse 6 of chapter 6, 1 Timothy, Paul writes, But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many grief. And so how do we deal with greed? See, greed, uh, greed dies, and this is the best way I can think, greed dies in the presence of contentment. And greed dies in the presence of contentment. And the word translated contentment there, it means to have enough or to be sufficient. It speaks of being free from relying on things to find satisfaction in things. It is a birth from the assurance, actually, that God has supplied all that we need. So, so the question that, that we leave with here at the end of this message is, uh, how do we become content? How do we become content? And I think this passage gives us two important ideas. Number one, uh, in order to become content, we need to learn how to live simply. How to live simply or simple. Philosophers like Aristotle and, and St. Thomas Aquinas, the, the Catholic monk, uh, speaks of wealth in two categories. They call it natural wealth, which refers to things like food and clothing and dwelling and cars. Uh, these items are what we need to survive and flourish as humans in this world. And so, in a, in a lot of ways, it's good and necessary to pursue natural wealth. And on the other hand, though, artificial wealth refers to money or credit cards and, and checking accounts and, and anything you use to purchase a natural wealth. And so uh, what greed does, it takes these artificial wealth and places it in the position of natural wealth. And we begin to see money and bank accounts and achievements as necessary to survive and to flourish. We become what we own and what we achieve. And so against this mindset, Paul writes in verse 8, but if we have food and clothing, natural wealth, we will be content with that. And so the call to live simply means to intentionally evaluate and remove anything that is beyond the necessities. Simplicity means learning to define ourselves, not by what we own, but by how we relate to others, to God, and to the physical world. That's the essence of simplicity, that our contentment, our joy comes not from by not from what we own or what kind of career or the things that we're trying to pursue, but, but our relationships, the things that defines us in how we interact with others. So contentment begins as we learn to live simply. The other thing that we need to know, how we gain contentment, is to live godly, to live godly. Check it out, okay? So in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And so if you think about that sentence, what is this gain that Paul refers to? Uh, isn't it kind of greedy? Isn't this greedy language to go after gain in this way? So how will we see this gain concept? 
in light of the rest of the passage. Now, if we look at verse 10, uh, the warning there, in the eagerness for money, what did Paul say? Some people have wandered from the faith. Therefore, the great gain, if we put those together, the, the great gain in verse 6 is godliness together with contentment leads to increasing faith. A faith that stands strong instead of wandering away. A faith that is focused and is satisfied by the goodness of God. And so here, here's the thing. I'm going to twist this around a little. If we are to be greedy, and all of you guys are greedy, just turn to your neighbor and say, I know you're greedy. Okay? Okay? We are driven people. We are driven people. Right? Some of you guys are driven to get the best score on the video games. Some of you are driven to get the best grades or to get into the best schools or to get that promotion or to get to make the most money and retire by the time you're 40. That's awesome if you are. But I think what Paul is saying here, if you are to be greedy, be greedy for more of God. I want to leave you something. If you are to run after something, Run after more of Christ. Because to live godly means that, the only, that only the infinite God can satisfy the longings of our eternal soul. Does that make sense? If our soul is eternal, then how can it ever be satisfied with temporary things, things we cannot take with us? Only the infinite God, the infinite merciful, beautiful God can satisfy what we are created to be. And if that's true, brothers and sisters, are you willing to do whatever it takes, confront and remove any barriers so that God can have more of you? I love that story the Pharisees or, or the teachers of the law comes to Jesus and they said, Jesus, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Remember Jesus' answer? Show me a denarius. Show me a coin. Show me a Roman coin. And he says, what inscription, what picture is on this coin? And they say, it's Caesar. And what did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. And I think about that, and I say, what is it in your life that blocks God from having all of you? Will you do whatever it takes? Will you be greedy? Will you be jealous for God? In Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 and 13, Paul writes, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Brothers and sisters, read it with me. What is the secret? I 
Right, only three of you guys believed it. So, so let's read it again. One, two, three. I can do all this. The one consuming passion of Paul is Christ. The only thing that satisfies him is Christ. And none of you guys here, how many of you guys really believe that? Because you're going to go back to work on Monday, and you're going to say with your lives, no, Christ is not sufficient. I got work. I got to earn. I got to fight. I got to stand up. I can do all things through Christ. And so what is the secret of contentment? I came up with these three lines. Christ, my strength. Christ, my sufficiency. Christ, my satisfaction. So I pray as you go forth this week that these three things will stay. In a world driven by greed, you would stand forth as light shining in darkness, that Christ is my strength. Christ is my sufficiency. Christ is my satisfaction. Let us run and go after that which really satisfies. Amen. Pray. Holy God, I know that we cannot do this without you. I can't, you know, I, I sometimes I stand up here and, and I say these words and I'm like, wow. Do I really mean these words? Is it possible to live this way? So God, I pray. I pray for every single one of my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, would you make us hungry for you? Whether we have so many things or, or you know, our lives are so busy that nothing will satisfy apart from a relationship with you. God, I'm tired. If I'm honest, I'm tired of losing so many students to the things of this world. I'm so tired of them going to college and, and just leaving their faith behind and could care less about who you are. Would you you just engrave it on our hearts that I was created for you and you for me and nothing else was satisfied. In you all these things will be given. Wonderful promises. Let it be true of us. In Jesus' name.